and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right. Today's guest is a repeater on the farm and fast becoming one of my favorites. He is the host of Operation GCD podcast. There he offers a shenanigans infused journey into the mind of that particular garbage can dude. Live recorded from his studio space slash spare bedroom in the foothills of Appalachia directly from the overdose capital of America. Adding comedy to conspiracy theory, he explores the topics of secret societies, other occult groups, and such taboo subjects of in our modern era of censorship. Some of those podcasts and series written articles on the Operation GCD website include The Founding Fathers and the Mountains They Loved, Smiley Face Killers, A Modern Day Human Ritual Sacrifice, and Smells Like Laurel Canyon, The Secret History of Britain Rock. Before his foray into the world of conspiracy theory, quote-unquote podcasting, he traveled the world for a couple of decades as the poster child of the U.S. Air Force Military Police. In those travels, he discovered the Agrola History of America, the Society of Cincinnati, and America's ancient architecture, the Mounds. Folks, I give you guys the great J.J. Vance. J.J., thank you so much for joining by again today, sir. <clears throat> Stephen, great to, great to be here with you, folks. I appreciate the uh, introduction, and I uh, definitely look forward to this conversation as it's a very Mound-centric conversation. Yeah, we got on deck today. And fittingly enough, we have also suffered the wrath of nature in order to effectively carry this show out. Uh, I guess JJ was bombarded by the winter storms yesterday. I was bombarded today. I've been without power since 7 in the morning and am recording this at uh, my mom's residency here. So uh, I suppose it's fitting uh, for the topic that we are going to get into uh, this discussion. And now we're going to be a deep dive into some type of cult or secret society with JJ with me. For this outing, we've got an especially novel one for y'all. That would be the Nawabian Nation. If you're white in America and not much of a hip-hop fan, you probably haven't heard of guys. They grew out of Moorish science, the Nation of Islam, the Five Percenters, and Black Sects. But gradually, the group began to embrace increasingly fringe ideologies of the right, including the whole concept of Southern citizens. It was an intoxicating brew, and more than a few hip-hop artists paid tribute to founder Dwight York and his Moabian nation and song over the years. But the sect's biggest catch by far was actor Wesley Snipes. Both Snipes and the Blade franchise were crucial to the success of the sect. We're going to explore these bizarre developments along with York and the cult's downfall. And it will not be over until the fat lady from Lakeda sings. So on that note, let us start the show. Mm-hmm. 
logical place to start is often with the beginning. In this case, here is the enigmatic figure of Dwight York. So first off, tell us a bit about this guy's ancestry. He's made some grandiose claims, to put it mildly, including being the only African American on the Lewis and Clark expedition, a topic that I find to be endlessly fascinating personally. Is there any truth to that one, or are some of his claims of royal royal heritage uh, maybe a bit of a stretch of the truth? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I can't quite honestly say, I haven't done the genealogy work on that one, but I do find that as an interesting piece of his tale, as far as the, the tale the man tells, Dwight York that is as far as uh, how he sold himself. And, and I think in large part, uh, I view him as a, as a, uh, a counterculture figure throughout, you know, establishing through, through much of the sixties, right along, like you said, with the nation of Islam. And uh, he was, he seemed to be prominent amongst those communities that, uh, and that's kind of where he made his name of sorts where he uh, came up in the world. And, you know, is he, he does have a lot of grandiose tales. That's for That's for certain. But his uh, connections, as far as genealogy goes, yeah, I'll have to do the genealogy work on that one because th- th- they are interesting in, in regards to some of the other aspects of, of the tale of Dwight York. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, I do find that fascinating that he would sing about the Lewis and Clark expedition of all things. Um, exactly, yeah, because, yeah, for sure, because the guy has, much like Lewis and Clark, had a, a deep interest in the, in the mounds. Dwight York has a has a, had a, has and or had a deep interest in the mounds. I'm not sure if he's sitting in prison today with that same interest, but he he, he most likely still is. Yes, absolutely. Well, so his his ideology is a curious mixture of cargo cult style ufology and black supremacy, for lack of a better term. Uh, in addition to ufology and uh, inevitably Freemasonry, the usual suspects are present among his listed influences. Already knocked off a few of them again. You've got the OG movement, the Moorish Science Temple of America, uh, the Breakaway Nation of Islam, and the Five Percenters, the Breakaway Sect of the Breakaway Sect. So what to the extent did these ideologies influence York's own? Well, that's interesting because, you know, in, in large part, I, I would never view the Nation of Islam as an ancient alien cargo cult, but in many regards and aspects they are. Yeah, and well, they tried to that. cover it up, I think, more when they broke more science temple. They were sort of, I think, the one that kind of craved legitimacy more than any of the other ones. No, I think you're right in that assessment. And, and uh, it really dawned on me, though, with as far as the Nation of Islam goes, is when, um, well, we'll call it circa 2012 or 2013, Louis Farrakhan, the current uh, head of the Nation of Islam, he, uh, I don't know what his title is, I, cu- I couldn't recall. He's probably got a few of them as far as I, from my recollection. Um, but he, he signed the, not only himself up, but he signed the entire Nation of Islam up for Scientology. Now, well, on its surface is obviously Louis Farrakhan-style move, because that's a Ponzi scheme, and as a result of that Scientology, yes, it is an ancient alien cargo cult, but it's also a multi, multi-level marketing Ponzi scheme, whereas Louis Farrakhan and signing up his thousands, tens of thousands, I, I mean, hundreds of thousands of members, I, you know, it's always tough to put, a, put, a, put your thumb on some of these cults and their actual membership, 
because you know Scientology claims millions of people and it's like forty thousand from my rough estimates. But anyhow, the uh, the nation of, as the nation of Islam goes, Louis Farrakhan signed everyone up for Scientology, so he's they're all in his downstream. So he gets a ten percent of everything that every one of those membership spends on books and and uh, courses, et cetera, within the Church of Scientology. But you know, so on its face, it made a little bit of sense to me at the time. But as I look further into the matter, it seems to be that they have some some common uh, philosophies as far as ancient alien cargo cults go between the Nation of Islam and Scientology. So maybe they weren't such strange bedfellows after all. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I've um, always wanted to explore the history of Moorish science like a little more because they were actually one of the um, the earlier ancient ancient astronaut kind of cults, if you were, what we would sort of think of as it nowadays. If I'm not mistaken, I think they had um, adopted some of those elements as far back as possibly the 1920s or 30s or something to that effect. So even before- oh, that'd be interesting. I'm I'm unfamiliar with with the uh, you know, the history of their their. Uh- cold philosophy and whatnot, but that would be interesting if it dates back that far. Yeah, obviously yeah. Obviously, it goes back. It obviously, it's a, it's a notion and concept and, and cult that predates, obviously, the 20s, but there is a period of time in the 20s where the, in that era there didn't seem to be a, a large uptick in, in, in the growth of these groups, where there had been at the end of the 19th century, where there has been in the, um, from the 40s on, essentially, right? But in, the, in that era of the 1920s, that'd be interesting to know that there's other groups back there that I'm not familiar with because it seemed to be a kind of a downturn and not just the secret societies, but just the, the ancient alien cargo cultist forms of the secret societies there at the uh, end of the 19th century. You know, they're kind of the end of their golden era of the secret societies. And uh, it'd be interesting to know uh, where they fall into line as far as where that philosophy begins then, yeah, because... Obviously, their 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 uh, their membership is a different socioeconomic group than, let's say, the, you know, the Freemasons for the most part. Well, I think Theosophy probably played like a role, especially, um, you know, to kind of put this in perspective. You had the uh, the eighteen ninety three Columbian expedition, you know, in Chicago, the World's Fair there in eighteen ninety three. Um, which the Theosophical Society actually played a pretty large role in. Um, they brought several gurus and what have you over um, from India to speak at it. So for a lot of Americans, um, <clears throat> this was the first time that they were sort of directly exposed to uh, conventional like Hinduism and Buddhism and that kind of thing. Uh, and also, sure. certainly too, I mean, it was more... Um, you know, I mean, more reverence I mean, for uh, religions that were rooted, you know, in uh, nations that were not white and so forth. So I, you know, I, I could definitely see where you're going with that. And I could definitely see where theosophy would play, be playing a role in all of that. Because they yeah, theosophy was, was, was definitely a significant influence, I think, on the early Moorish science temple. But, yeah, I kind of saw it partly as maybe an offshoot of that. But another... And if I, I, if I, I just may interject real quick, Stephen, if I may interject real fast, uh, uh, the, the Theosophical Society was indeed run by a member of the Society of Cincinnati. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, Abner Doubleday, the guy who's often credited with the the, the invention of, of baseball. He was, a, he was a major general in the uh, Union Army during the Civil War and uh, the president of the Theosophical Society and a member of the Society of Cincinnati. Well, I mean, I was going to say on that note, too, another influence, I suspect, I haven't had a chance to research this as much as I would like, but... I would imagine that P.D. Um, P.B. Randolph was probably a, a significant one as well. Pascal Beverly Randolph. I mean, frankly, really a profoundly 
overlooked figure. I mean, he was obviously the first one, too, to really bring, you know, the whole concept of sex magic over to America in at least a public fashion in the late 19th century. Uh, yeah, definitely seemed to popularize it. Yeah, I mean, the earliest, um, you know, I mean, Russia Crucian organization, I think, in the United States, a lot of other things. But I know Randolph, though, was quite active in the whole area with, like, New York and that kind of region. So I have often wondered, too, uh, because, I mean, he also delved a lot in, uh, you know, healing and that kind of thing. I mean, he was generally credited almost with supernatural powers. Uh, it does remind me a bit of some of the later claims as well with more science. So it would certainly be interesting to kind of like track down that as well. But again, P.B. Randolph um, was actually descendant of the, uh, the famous Randolph family from Virginia, which was another. Oh, so he's a cousin of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he was, and I mean, again, from like the big Virginia one that, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, or at least several of the big society of Cincinnati figures in the early days have been uh, members of. So, yeah. Now, I think a lot of those members were, I think those are the people that have pushed a lot of those those ideas are members of the society. So that's not a surprise to me. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with P.B. Randolph and I, uh, I'm, you know, as far as the sex magic uh, introductions into into the, into the culture and whatnot, but I, I don't know a lot about his history and other aspects of the man's life. But he sounds like an interesting character I'm going to have to learn more about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely think, I mean, it's a whole kind of strain of, uh, you know, African-American mysticism that's generally greatly overlooked in a lot of this. But, I mean, it still sort of ties in ultimately to some of these uh, storied American dynasties, which is, again, one of the things about this that's so strange ultimately. Sure. And I think it's those dynasties that, again, are pushing the, these, these ideas and concepts and philosophies through these cults along through history, you know, into our present day. And, but I think you touched on a good piece momentarily there. You just want to make a comment on, which was the philosophy of understandings of these, of these cult groups, like the more science folks there, of this, uh, or Scientology for that matter, is this idea that you can, you can think yourself out of any kind of ailment or illness. Right, and and uh, and I think that that is a the power of the mind. Kind of, you can cure anything. Is is a, seems to be an underlying uh, philosophy that's shared by a lot of these groups. Yeah, well, that was. I mean, the New Thought movement. This was sort of like an offshoot of the New Thought movement that was really big uh, in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, especially in California. And again, that sort of like intersects once more with the Theosophical Society and. You know, again, some of the early Rosicrucian groups as well. Um, you know, you see some of this as, you know, obviously Amor, uh, Henry Spencer Lewis's outfit. I mean, it was another one, I mean, in the early pulp magazines that, I mean, tended to promote this kind of stuff along with um, devices, techniques for healing, and, you know, how to become invisible and all kinds of other stuff like that. So, oh, sure. Sure. Uh, another yeah, Rosicrucian like debate on that one. Stuff was in the air during this whole particular era at the turn of the 20th century. Um, all right, so... Yeah, so much like the Rosicrucians, like, you know, they, they had a deep affinity for ancient Egypt. And much like um, uh, Alistair Crowley seems to have just mashed together a lot of ancient, more ancient philosophies into, into his modern-day Philema. I think Dwight York was in that same, same kind of vein as both those organizations, both Crowley and the Rosicrucians. Um, and, and the respect that he, he, Dwight York was mashing together a lot of these philosophies that he, you know, he was accustomed to, and including his, his deep affinity for ancient Egypt and his, um, 
you know, uh, other uh, sex magic type um, philosophies that he adapted into his cult as well. Well, certainly. Um, but getting back also to the Nawabians here, uh, so I understand is before they departed Brooklyn, I think they were in Brooklyn until like what the uh, the late '80s, early '90s. I think that was when their major base of operations uh, was in that region. Uh, there was yes, something... I think that was just a contention of the fact that that's just where Dwight York already lived. You know what I mean? That's where he grew up. Yeah, yeah. Time. I don't think there was anything significant, but I mean that was yeah, right, I guess, right, like, right. Town, but also my understanding is that by that point in time, there had been some bad blood between certain factions of the Nation of Islam and the Five Percenters. Um, do you think maybe possibly also? I mean, they were possibly potentially driven out through a power struggle or something to that effect. Oh, I think that's exactly what happened. I think he was a very polarizing figure. York was. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the some of the contention internally to the organization had something to do with what York later went to prison for. The uh, the the child sex trafficking aspect of the situation, but yeah, there definitely seemed to be a, an internal power struggle. And uh, I, I mean, I view the New Auburn Nation as uh, as an offshoot, you know, basically of, of the Nation of Islam as a result of that. Okay, interesting. Well, another figure I was really curious about who uh, got his start around the same time in York and the same region uh, was Peter Lamborn Wilson, alias Hakeem Bey. Uh, he was also a guy who was fascinated by Moorish science and became a wandering bishop, and in particular Moorish uh, science-oriented sect. No, I'm not happy with wandering bishop in the respect of, like, JFK wandering bishops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was actually, his line of... Um, Consecration went through, oh God, what was the dude's name? I can't remember now, but okay, so the guy who consecrated Peter Lamborn Wilson uh, as a bishop was consecrated by Christopher Maria Stanley, who was also the guy who consecrated David Barry and potentially Jack S. Martin as well. He was a member of that you know, American Orthodox Catholic Church, and he was also Stanley was like the Pope, right? Wasn't he like the Pope of the yeah? American he eventually that, and then he was he was a member of this one of the uh, sovereign orders of Saint John as well. So I mean, he complained himself like a knight, and then later he had a breakaway sect of the Order of Saint John and hailed himself as a Grand Master. So. He was a. Yeah, I'm, intrigued, I'm intrigued by that group. That group in general, yeah, it's an intrigue, The American Orthodox Catholic Church. I view it as J. Edgar Hoover's personal and Cointel gang. You know what I mean? Well, I'll tell you something as, else too. I wish since I... he was the chairman of the board of the church, you know what I mean. So, but in that regard, I, I find that intriguing. But also in regard to ancient alien cargo cultists, um, Tommy D. Baumler there out of out, out of uh, Guy Bannister's office, one of, one of those wandering bishops himself he's the one he's the lawyer that uh that, that incorporated the process church in the final judgment oh yeah 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 no, that's like another interesting tie with that and yeah, that, that group is you know there's a there's there's something going on there that i think yet, the story yet to be fully uh fully told no absolutely but i'll tell you like another interesting connection uh with this to the priest or bishop who had ordained Peter Lamborn Wilson, uh, also interestingly enough, was the same one who ordained Marion Zimmer Bradley and um, Walter Breen uh, for the church that they set up as well. So, um, yes, yes. So, what was this Wilson guy's shit? Like, what was, like, what did he do? Oh, you're not familiar with that? Was he operating in the same circles at the same time, or was he like an offshoot of the Wandering Bishops from from that group? 
Oh, well, he had a lot of different stuff going on. Okay, so you're not – okay, uh, well, Peter Lamborn Wilson, alias Hakeem Bay, got his start in the 60s with this Moorish science stuff, and then uh, he ended up uh, at Millbrook uh, for a while, uh, you know, the emphasis okay. the state that Larry was operating out of with uh, Richard Mellon Hitchcock back – or Richard Mellon – yeah, Richard Mellon Hitchcock backing him. And then he went uh, on an extended journey in the Middle East for a time, ended up in Iran, and he was basically studying Sufism at that um, traditionalist school that they had set up in the waning days of the uh, monarchy. Oh, okay. Then he returned to the United States in the mid or in late 1979 after the Shah was uh, deposed. From there, he reinvented himself um, as a counter 80s countercultural culture uh, icon in the zines uh among right other, right okay I'm, I'm tracking now i, I was vaguely yeah I'm, well, I'm, the I'm big thing with him was players. like the temporary autonomous zones the taz zones which were just you know big during the protests like in 2020 right, right. They, they they caught they caught fire real quick there in 2020 <laughs> yeah yeah well he came up with that concept actually all the way back in the 80s and then burning man was also partly inspired by Hakeem bay so Right, right, along with the Discordians, right? He was intermingled with some Discordians and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was part of the whole Discordian Church of Subgenius Milieu and that kind of thing. But another thing about him, JJ, he was involved with NAMBLA along with Green. He wrote about NAMBLA and he wrote a lot of what he described as um, esoteric Sufi poetry, I think, uh, that was dedicated to pedophilia. Uh, it goes on, you know, about things like the the divinity of the anus of a small child and, you know, that kind of good stuff. Um, so that's that's Hakeem Bey. Um, so Maybe that's why I'm hip to who he is, because I, I, do, I do have a rough understanding of his background. I just, when, they, when folks start going by multiple names, it does get confusing at times. But He's the, just courting uh, These guys all go by multiple names. They do. They all have different pseudonyms, for sure. Every, every last one of them, it seems, in that, in that little network. But yeah, the uh, the Nablo situation, I just, you know, I, I, I've always struggled to find any proper context for the even the mere existence of the organization. Yeah, well, th- this is why I'm saying it would be really interesting to know if York had interacted with um, uh, Lamborn Wilson, alias Akhim Bay, in the 60s. Um, because, again, you know, you also have, in York's case, also this specter of pedophilia. They both sort of had this uh, backdrop in the more science and all this other good stuff. So it's. No, yeah, I think you're onto something. There's, it seems like there's, there's likely an intersection between these two parties back in the, uh, at least in the early onset of their. Of their uh, quote-unquote careers yeah no for sure well all right let's let's get back here to york's life for a minute so around 1970 he travels to africa specifically egypt because of course he would and the sudan (laughs) it's at the latter that he becomes involved with uh, the ansar movement i believe is how it's pronounced and this is a sunni Sufi religious movement that was established there during the late 19th century and this is i should point out this is like a like a legitimate Sufi organization. This isn't like, you know, Hakeem Bey's, you know, counterculture take on it. This uh, was an actual one that had uh, more uh, ancient, not ancient, but uh, certainly a longer lineage than some of the counterculture branches that were set up by Westerners or even some of the ones that were set up in the 30s. But anyway, during the World War II era, 
um, the Anzar movement has established its own political party, uh, the Yuma party, which has a power in Sudan, in the Sudan, um, though typically that's followed by a brutal military coup. Uh, do you have anything else to add about the Anzar movement or its party, JJ? Because I believe they actually funded York for quite a bit of uh, time. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm familiar with his, his connections with with their uh, with, with his Africa travels and, and uh, explorations, if you will. But the uh, I'm not, I don't have any anything further to add on that uh, that organization in particular. All right. Well, yeah, no, that was. Def- I, mean, I, I mean, it would be interesting to know who's funding that organization, right? Because he, did, he definitely did have connect- York definitely did have connections there. I mean, and, you know, it, the trajectory York would later take. You know, you know, I often wonder who funds who's who's the early onset financier of these of these activities. You know, if you were looking at something like the Beatles, and you can see some of the early onset financing out of the Tavistock Institution and whatnot that surrounds the Beatles. You know, you can kind of understand where you know their later trajectory as far as you know their later career goes. Out, you know, as as they projected into worldwide worldwide fame. You know, and in York again. Much like this Wilson character, they both they do they have similar projections and trajectories in life as far as uh, their interests and uh, activities and you know what they ended up in a counterculture style figure. So you know the finance the financing of whoever's at the early onset of many of these characters, I think, would be important. That's what I'm getting at. No, that's an excellent point, and I hadn't you know that hadn't really occurred to me either, but um. That is fascinating because Hakeem Bey and York, you know, again, paralleling each other, do seem like they did extended, uh, extended travels in uh, North Africa and uh, the East, respectively. Um, also, Limbermuth, I think, was in uh, uh, Afghanistan for like a brief period of time in the early 70s as well. But also a bit kind of like political hotspots. And here are these, you know, Americans kind of wandering around studying supposedly these ancient traditions. They both end up studying Sufism, uh, Wilson in Iran, and um, York in uh, the Sudan. So, uh, and then obviously they later get the financial backing from that. So it's it's definitely an interesting overlap there. And then certainly the fact that they both would later become counterculture icons, reach the pinnacle of their influence around like the 80s, going into the early 90s in a sense. So exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's it, once you mention Wilson, as I compare the two the two trajectories of both those individuals, they seem very again their, their activities and interests are. are, are identical in, in, at the same time. So it really you know, almost speaks to the fact that they, they, they have to have not at least know each other, but could, could also speak to the more uh, orchestrated and engineered environment with those two characters. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously they were going to a lot of political hotspots during this time as well. Um, you know, the 70s was a pretty uh, intense time in the Cold War, obviously. So, yeah, it's a bit of a question about what also they might have been up to when they were overseas. But it's, you know, that's exactly what the Wandering Bishops did, right? I mean, that's, that's, that was the pretense of why Edgar Hoover was so interested in, in a, his own Wandering Bishop operation, the American Orthodox Catholic Church, because he was not only familiar with his own tactics, but he was mimicking the tactics of others as far as using these, these religious figures as intel operators. You know, it's because the, you know, especially in the 1970s and like speaking of like place like New York City where Dwight York is from, if you were dressed up as a, a any sort of religious figure, you know, Catholic priest or you, you name it, the religious uh, denomination, some sort of priesthood figure from that 
religious denomination, I mean, you could walk into you walk into anywhere. No one's ever going to ask you what you're doing. No one's going to ask you why you're here. Everyone's going to pay you proper proper respects for being a religious figure figurehead. So, you know, I can see why there would be some advantages there, and especially when you can send these people to other nations, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same reason why you know there's been standing standing well long hundreds of years before Hollywood, long-standing use of entertainers as operatives. You know, I think most famously. One of the most famous and more boisterous of that of his existence as an intelligence operative was the uh, Gong Show, Chuck Barris. Chuck Barris, yeah. But in that same regard, religious figures they serve the same kind of purpose in many respects. Because much like the entertainer, the religious head can walk in any place. I mean, think about Tom Cruise. He's not technically a religious head of Scientology, is the unofficial religious head of Scientology. Him and David Miscavige tightly linked hand, hand in hand. Hopefully that's not the only physical contact they have, but at least hand in hand and um, everywhere they go in the world. So, I mean, but think about Tom Cruise, you know, he can go anywhere. Who doesn't want to meet Tom Cruise? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think in, in many respects, that's, you know, it's the same, same understanding as how, why these bishops operate these wandering bishops. So, yeah, traveling to other nations, going to political hotspots. I feel like these wandering bishops are, that's exactly what they're doing at all times. You know, that's, that's, that's their primary operation. <laughs> it has nothing to do with religious services, you know what I mean? Yeah, and on that note, too, the, the bishop who ordained both Hakeem Bey and uh, Walter Breen and the sci-fi author Marion Zimmer Bradley was uh, Mikhail Itkin. He was also accused of uh, sexually abusing minors, as were some of his other charges. But yes, he was the guy who essentially helped Bradley and Breen set up a church along with Hakeem Bey. Um, Hakeem Bey was just only wrote for now, but like he was never actually convicted of sexually abusing children, unlike um, Breen and also Marion Zimmer Bradley. A lot of evidence has come out from her, specifically Moria Grayland, her uh, daughter, and I believe at least one of her other children, that they were all sexually abused by both her and Breen uh, as they were growing sure. up. So, yeah, I, I get it. Potentially, an individual could potentially represent or advocate for an organization such as NAMBLA and not be inclined to believe in their philosophies, but I'm not inclined to believe that story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, educating and, and writing things, you know, pro-NAMBLA and stuff like that. You know, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Functioning of NAMBLA. I mean, there's, you're not, there's nothing that's going to depend on from immediately assuming you know, for, for all time, for, you know, per, per, perpetuity, that you are, in fact, a diddler if you work for NAMBLA or you're pro-NAMBLA, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um yeah, so Itkin, he's, and he was, by the way, also the one uh, who was consecrated by Christopher Maria Stanley directly. In fact, I think Itkin and Stanley might have even been active in the same church together, like around 1960 or something. I don't have my... That makes sense, because Stanley did have a couple of operations going. He was the American Orthodox Catholic Church, but he was active in other, in other operations as well. That, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, I think this was actually... Probably one out of Atlanta, if I remember correctly. Church, but yeah, he's... um. These guys get around and they turn up in a lot of different places. Um, but okay, so Hucky and, and overwhelmingly, those guys were also Namble fans. The American Orthodox Catholic Church hierarchy. When I say hierarchy, you know, like the dozen or so, you know, priests that they had ordained amongst their, you know, con- conger, you know, lack of congregation, lack of they had a lot of bishops. Very few priests. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, bishops. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry, bishops. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not good with my. Uh, they're all men of the cloth to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. But yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, David Ferry was uh, famously uh, a, a Namble fan, if you will. Uh, I mean, there's. I believe he was even shacking up with a college student as his alibi for uh, you know the weekend, you know, during the Kennedy assassination. You know, so. Uh, well, you know, college student there in in Louisiana somewhere. So I mean, there's a, you know, they they all had a, they all seem to have an affinity for the for the young boys that Monk says and American Orthodox Catholic Church bishops. I mean, did did J. Edgar Hoover? Not sure, but he was seemingly a raging homosexual, and you know, there is some valid accounts of that as far as uh, from uh, I think if I remember correctly, reading in Dave McGowan's book out of Laurel Canyon. There was a brothel that was raided in Laurel Canyon by LA County Sheriff's Department there in the '60s, and and in the paperwork there, they had Clyde Tolson and uh, Jagger Hoover as uh, regular Johns to that to that house that was a you know a homosexual brothel. So I mean, there is some fairly objective evidence that Hoover was you know engaged in some in some uh, strange sexual activities himself. So did, did it also involve young boys? I mean, he certainly surrounded himself with a lot of Namble fans if he, if he didn't have an interest himself. So another thing that kind of jumps out to me with like Hakeem Bay and possibly the overlap with York was sort of their approach to legalistic stuff, for lack of a better term. I mean, obviously, uh, Hakeem Bay preached a sort of anarchism that more or less would uh, try to establish zones outside of the authority of the United States government. And bizarrely enough, York later uh, began incorporating notions of the sovereign citizen ideology, another, uh, you know, kind of anarchistic, uh, or certainly from the right type of ideology. So when did York start with this anyway? I, I think I think it largely grew out of, in the 80s, there, out of, out of his... Uh... Uh, early onset of his, his New Auburn Nation cult. With, and again, I think, it's, in my opinion, I'm circling it back to the whole uh, pedophilia uh, subject matter because that, that seems to go hand in hand with, with at least these individuals' uh, ideas of a sovereign nation, right? That they can set up their own, their own they are their own sovereign citizens and they can set up their own sovereign nation within the United States and the, and the United States must recognize it as such. That's that's the ba- their basic tenets of their of their understanding of, of their uh, situation, I, and I think the the impetus behind that philosophy that, that they espouse is uh, is the fact that they want to go do stuff to kids and not have to adhere to the laws of the United States. You know, and and uh, you know, you may not you may not realize it, but the laws, the federal laws of, of of activity such as that aren't really that old. You know. We're talking like the year, I think the early 1950s is, is, uh, is, the, is the early onset of uh, federal laws against, you know, sexual trafficking of kids and stuff like that. The, you know, you have the Mann Act, which was kind of the early onset of that federal legislation. So there has been some, obviously, some pushback over the years and in recent history over, this, over the subject. And I think that is the driving force by the time the 60s and 70s roll around or these characters who, you know, the Namble, the Nambleites, if you will, because um, I believe that was uh, incorporated in around 77 or 78, if I'm not mistaken, and they're in New York City. So I think these, these folks, have ultimately the impetus behind their activities of a sovereign citizen and sovereign nation is that they want to go do these activities outside the realm of the United States that, that they can get away with these things and not be you know, subject to the, to the penalties such as Dwight York is now subject to in, in federal prison for the rest of his life. Okay, so 
All right, let's get into the uh, the move. Does that, does that make sense? Does that, does that make sense what I'm, what I'm saying as far as why, why they, they have this driving force to be a sovereign nation, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, you know, I was kind of thinking, obviously, that the sovereign citizen movement is typically associated with the right, but, I mean, it's also, I think, not too far removed from, again, this whole network of wandering bishops that we were – uh, just outlining, I mean, there has been a certain degree of overlap with the Christian identity movement. Uh, actually, the order, the various sovereign orders of St. John would be a very uh, prevalent overlap with that, because on the one hand, you would have a guy like Christopher Maria Stanley, who was active in these wandering bishop circles, but then conversely, he was also active in these pseudo-orders of St. John. Uh, that would have sure. contact with people like General Pedro Dow Valley, major figures, um, in some of these kind of uh, almost quasi-Christian identity movements. I mean, he was also in contact, El Valley, with George Lincoln Rockwell to boot. Uh, William Potter Gale, not necessarily a member of the Order of St. John, but he was in his milieu. He was one of the big identity preachers, along with Gerald L.K. Smith. Uh, and that was really what led to a lot of the sovereign citizen stuff that became popularized in the 80s with Gordon Call and what have you. It was kind of... Um, an outgrowth of Gale's, you know, Patriot Party in California and some of this other sort of poopy stuff that they were involved with back then. But no, I, I'm tracking with what you're saying, and I think in large part it has been uh, uh, the examples historically speaking in recent years has been a from the right right political you know side of things as opposed to the left political side of, of the equation. But I only I really look at that as less less of a left and right thing and more as the, the this network of individuals who seek these ends of a sovereign nation, sovereign citizen movements, use those political sides to their, to their own means. I mean, they have no direct connections to the either political side so much as they're just functioning. They want to use the political side to their, as a tool in their, in their, you know, their, their battle for sovereign, sovereign citizen, sovereign nation. I mean, it actually kind of seems like in the grand scheme of things, a lot of these groups are really libertarians at heart more than anything, because, I mean, that kind of, it's, I mean, this sort of individualism taken to its absolute extreme, where it's like we have the right, you know, to violate uh, other people's bodies, (laughs) property, all this other kind of stuff, because, I mean, we're a superior whatever, you know, to them. We have the right to stand in the middle of a highway uh, on-ramp. And if you run me over, then you're at fault. You know, it's the same that happened a couple of times in recent recent years. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the same mindset. You know, yeah, it's the it's, it is an extreme version of individualism and, and libertarianism for sure. I mean, when I think Anton Lavey was like trying to, uh, you know. Uh, put a little bit of eloquence into the ideology of the church of Satan. He was like going around and then he stumbled over objectivism, I, you know, the ideology of on Rand. And he was like, that, that that's it. You know, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> uh, all right, so let's get into their move to Georgia. Uh, when did they? When did the Nuwabian Nation uh, start doing this? And what was up with the compound they built? And what was the significance of the mound that was located near? So, as far as they're they're concerned, this is all this is all uh, a movement that began in the in the early to mid nineties and kind of flourished at, towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, before it came to a crashing end in the uh, mid-2000s. And, uh, it, I mean, it's shockingly, because, again, I, you know, as you stated when I first brought up the subject to you, you were unfamiliar with the existence of the New Auburn Nation and their city of Tamara, 
that they built in the middle of the hills of, of you know, the middle of the foothills of uh, northern Georgia there, uh, on, you know, on a mound that they had found significant importance to within the philosophies of their cult. And uh, I think in large part, no one really knows about this. You know what I mean? I don't think that, like, this was a major thing in any kind of media story, media report. I mean, going back and look, when I, you know, when I first learned of it, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so. I'm going back and looking at media reports at that time, you know, from the years prior, it, it was largely uncovered from every angle. I mean, there's just so much to the story that still to this day is untold. But yeah, this was a movement that started in the, in the early 90s. And uh, like I said, as far as a transition from uh, the formation really of the cult there in New York to the... Uh, moving, uh, you know, moving west, you know, kind of as the Mormons did, so to speak, and these guys moved south, technically, but, and finding their, their uh, you know, their, um, oh, I forget what the Mormons called it, but anyway, their, uh, their headquarters, you know, they're setting up, this is their, um, their Mecca, you mean? Yeah, their Mecca, yeah, there's, I, New, the New Wabin people have a name for it, the Mormons have a name for it, but I, I can't think of either one at the moment, <laughs> but yeah, their Mecca, that's a good, it's a good uh, correlation. Um, so yeah, and, uh, they put a lot of money into that place. I mean, I've, uh, I've been involved in the uh, production and, uh, uh, not, you know, the planning and, uh, and, uh, whatnot and construction of, of, uh, numerous, uh, uh, air force bases in austere environments in the Middle East, you know, as far as setting up a runway and all these other kind of things. Um, you know, I'm familiar with the, the civil engineering processes that are involved, even though I'm not a civil engineer, but I've obviously worked with those folks in those in the production and uh, construction of those of those airfields and air bases and you know there's that's not a little bit of money what they what they've installed into uh, the, the cold down in georgia so you know they're heavily financed when i say heavily financed if you have any uh if any folks have watched the uh wild country cult documentary on uh out of the cold out of oregon uh the um uh, I can't think of their names. The uh, anyhow, they set up. Uh, they're not Hare Krishnas, but they're. Uh, you know, what I'm, you, you know what I'm talking about, Stephen. The, oh, the Rashid, the ones who set up. The there country. we go. The Rashid cults. There we go. Yep, yep, yeah. The, the, the amount of money that, that went into that cult and, and the financing behind establishing that city that they put in the middle of nowhere in Oregon, that was a lot of money. I would actually say that the one in Georgia here with the Tom Ray city. Of the Nuwaba Nation, uh, that actually has, uh, I, I see a, a larger scale financing in, in the production and construction of that, of that, of that small city that they built in Georgia, you know, relatively compared to the, the cult uh, there out in Oregon. Both of them are well financed. I'm just saying that there's a lot of money that, got, that was behind Dwight York and, and this cult and their, uh, and their transition to uh, Georgia and their construction of their their headquarters city on this mound. And the mound, in their opinion, as far as New Auburn Nation was considered, uh, as far as they considered it, that was their, their ancestors built that mound. They were the, they're from the mound builders. They're sovereign citizens in, in, this, in this country of America because they're from the mound builders. And the mound builders also uh, were the Moorish people, they were Moorish people. And they were, they were also the people that built the uh, pyramids of Giza. So, as it, according to Dwight York, that's why they built a replica of Pyramids of Giza there in Tabaray, Ray uh, in, in uh, northern Georgia. So, 
well financed. I mean, it's not this is just some crazy guy in the woods, you know, with a, with a dozen followers. I mean, this is a large scale uh, cult, and uh, and again, widely widely unrecognized by any sort of media or any reporting on the matter. And again, that I find that very troubling. Just the the, the lack of of uh, information or any, no one seemed to care. He was just like, oh well, you know, these things happen. Yeah, no, it was really striking uh, that it was able to fly under so many people's radars for so long, certainly. Um, so I, in my opinion, that, that goes back to the Nation of Islam, and that's probably also, in my opinion, in the connection to Wesley Snipes. Is all is all goes back to the Nation of Islam. So, and, and speaking of the Nation of Islam, I, I can't think of the guy's name. It's Louis Farrakhan's number two guy. He's like the director of West Coast operations for the Nation of Islam, and he's He's out of Los. He's you know, long-standing, many decades out of Los Angeles. Um, he's he's the functionary between the Nation of Islam and Scientology, and a lot of the Hollywood folks out there. So I largely think that's where Snipes gets rolled into all this stuff. And I think that again, with York being a, a figure in in the Nation of Islam, even though he you know he have an offshoot cult or break off and do your own thing, and you may you may not have. Um, Followers from, you know, some followers in the nation of Islam may not may not join your cult, but you're gonna there's they're gonna you're gonna be friends. You're, you know, you're gonna have some admiration still for those individuals, and they're gonna they're gonna help. I think there's still coordination and and uh, activities amongst you know folks like Dwight York, who was a major figure in their nation of Islam, and and just the general um, membership of, of the nation of Islam. So Which, yeah, there's a lot of men. There's a lot of members in Hollywood that may, many folks may not realize our nation of Islam. I'm not denigrating anyone for being a member of the nation of Islam, but like someone like David, Dave Chappelle, right? He's, he's, he's been a long, decades long member of the nation of Islam, maybe three, three decades. Another thing that I kind of noted, the Nawabian nation seems to have had a lot of influence on um, the local hip hop scene in Georgia during this era, i.e. the 1990s, which is, Interesting because Georgia was really one of like the major scene. You had the whole kind of dungeon crew thing that was um, affiliated with Goody Mob and especially Outkast. Um, honestly, Outkast was arguably, well, maybe not the, the biggest hip hop group in uh, the United States, but the late nineties, early knots. But probably yeah, they were pretty big. I mean, it was both of those fellows' careers. I mean, they they were they were big. And I've heard that the Nawabians potentially had a certain degree of influence uh, on their music. It was a, kind of the reference that threw out in the lyrics at the beginning of the uh, or in the introduction here from an Outcast song. Um, so no, they definitely, yeah, there's definitely, there's yeah, for sure. No, there's definitely some sort of homage being paid to, to York and the Nawaban Nation from the Atlanta rapper rap, rap community, one hundred percent. You're definitely on. The, I, I don't know what 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 necessarily the ins and the outs of the what have yous are of that situation. But yeah, you can clearly see it's no different than like the 1960s uh, rock music paying homage to Tuesday Weld. I mean, there's a number of variety of different uh, rock bands in the 1960s or for whatever reason paying homage to this woman who is allegedly the high priestess of the Illuminati and is the, is, uh, if you look in Anton LaVey, as you mentioned a moment ago, Anton LaVey's uh, uh, Satanic Bible, he dedicates the Satanic Bible to, to Tuesday Weld. So, and he later is quoted as saying the reason why he did that is because she's part of the rituals. I don't know what that means, but that was his quote. 
So, what you know, much in that in that same in that same vein, yeah. There's definitely some sort of homage being paid to, from the Atlanta rap, the rap um, genre from Atlanta rap. Uh, different, you know, the whole community there, not just not not just Outcast. It's uh, paying homage to the New Albany Nation in, in Dwight York. Well, I was also thinking too, just because they incorporated such, you know, I mean, a, a big use of sort of these science fiction themes, outcasts specifically in a lot of their music with the UFOs and the, uh, you know, maybe even some of the transhumanist musings at a few point in songs like Synthesizer, some latter stuff. But um, I mean, I think, I mean, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I, I, I haven't really looked at their entire, I, mean, I can think of a couple examples. Yeah, but there's probably more that I'm not even thinking of. As yeah, I mean, next to like know, UFO, UFO connections, you know, like P Funk. I can't really think of another group in kind of you know African American music that it did as much. I think with some of these sort of science fiction motifs as Outcast, it's really fascinating. Sure. No, that is a good point. Um, okay, so getting into also some of the other things that happened when they got into Georgia in the nineties, my understanding is that they were able to pretty, Oh, I, one thing also I was going to ask you before we get to that. How much do you think that Mormonism could have potentially been an influence on their ideology? Yeah. So I think, and yeah, for sure. So I think what Dwight York did was in large regards, again, like what Alex Crowley did is he took a bunch of different philosophies uh, that predated his creation of Thelema and he matched all those philosophies together and, you know, pick, pick and choose the aspects that he liked and made the Lima. I think Dwight York did some very similar activities where he, he kind of hand selected some aspects of different philosophies that he was accustomed to different occult philosophies. And then he matched those together and made his new oven nation, which again is why I think you, I feel like you, there is, you know, crossover between a lot of these communities because they share a lot of the same theology and philosophies. Whereas, you know, he gets cross. York has crossover with the Islam, Nation of Islam. Nation of Islam has crossover and is actually full-blown Scientology members at today, <laughs> which, again, I still, it, I, I failed, like, I can't really fit that anywhere. Like, I, I can kind of contextualize the relationship, but it still doesn't make sense in my head. Like, it still does not make sense the Nation of Islam, the entire Nation of Islam are all Scientologists. It makes no sense to me. But, yeah, so, but I think in that regard, you know, where I can see where Mormonism could have an influence on for sure. Especially if York has these genealogical connections that he claims, you know, that, that I mean, was would... almost like the OG American ancient astronaut cult too. Um, you know, the divine bloodlines, we built the mounds. Uh, I think they also incorporated some stuff with Native Americans into their York, that is to say, into their ideology too, right? Um, Gosh. Who's that? The New Albany Nation or the Mormons? The New Albany Nation. I know the Mormons definitely. Oh yeah, yeah, the Mormons are deep into the natives. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, oh for sure. They they claim to be the natives. They claim to be the uh, the the one of the lost tribes of Israel. Okay, you know, that's, one of them. Yeah, yeah. Because I know there was speculation that's why the outcast guys were wearing like headdresses or something like that. One of oh their... yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like as soon as you said that, like I can think of a couple of examples, but there's probably way more. Yeah, those guys get real deep into that kind of. Uh, that kind of uh, symbology in their in, in their clothing and their whole in their whole way of being for sure. No, but yeah, I, I could see again if York has that genealogy too. Yeah, I could see where he's going to incorporate those those aspects. And there are certain aspects that he did incorporate into New Abomination that seem to be have the origins back to yeah, Mormon philosophy and theology. Yeah, it would also be interesting to know, I mean, if there was any overlap with some of the um, followers of Pascal Beverly Randolph, too, because I know he had a, a large presence in Georgia as well. In fact, that's kind of a, 
another interesting thing because he had a presence in sort of the area of Randolph, that is to say, around New York and uh, uh, Pennsylvania, but also in the South in the area around Atlanta and so forth. So, and uh, at least yeah. the it's been spread by Alan Greenfield as there are still some uh, kind of followers of Randolph that are active in that area. So. It would be interesting to know, too, I mean, if that was also possibly another reason why they had relocated to Georgia. Yeah, I'm intrigued by it, too. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I think, uh, again, I think uh, the uh, Pope there of the American Orthodox Catholic Church, Christopher Maria, Maria Stanley, I believe he was running a separate wandering bishop operation out of Atlanta at that in the, in the 1960s there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, – of Atlanta in that era, in that time frame with a lot of these same characters. And uh, I do find it interesting. So not only did they find a mound, they, they went deep into Cherokee Nation to discover uh, Tom Array, you know, and put it on this mound in northern Georgia. That's the heart. I mean, that's you're almost in the, one of the former – yeah, one of the former capitals there is just about 40 miles to the northwest of there into the Tennessee border. Um that you know, that's Cherokee. That's that's where the Cherokee Nation, uh, the the center of their of their nation was. That was and, like uh, also the whole Bright Eyes myth or something like that too. I think from that region or no. What's a month from there? With what's what's that one? It's kind of like the whole concept of like the uh, the pale skinned or white, uh, you know, uh, uh, Indians essentially. Oh yeah, I'm one of them. So that's what yeah. So I'm my second great grandfather was uh, Cherokee chief uh, George Lowry. Um, and he's a, he was a half Scotsman, half half Cherokee. His mother's Cherokee, so that's the and, and the Cherokee. Uh, I'm 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 only learning all these things since I did a DNA test two years ago, so I had no idea I was Cherokee. Um, I know it was Scots Irish. I look like the poster child for being Scots Irish. Um, but so this yeah, this man was Scots Irish Cherokee or Scots Cherokee. Um, uh, in the, the Cherokee Nation. The they had a you know maternal uh, uh, veneration you know so it was, it was not a paternal uh, lineage right for the chiefs right so like um, if, you know uh, whatever Cherokee chief was appointed you know, it was because of his mother and her mother's lineage it's, it's a strange concept in our modern modern paternal uh, you know heritages of the West concepts you know mm. but. Uh, yeah, there, there is a there's a large yeah I, I have not, I'm not familiar with that term but but yeah there is a large community of of white of essentially white Cherokee I mean uh, Scotch Scotch Irish Cherokee it's, in fact they have festivals there in that same area of New Albany Nation today um, uh, where they set up shop in Georgia there's festivals in the counties in there in northern Georgia Scotch Irish Cherokee festivals like you would see in Appalachia for you know, the, the Irish festivals or, you know, whatever, you know, Appalachian festivals in that same regard, you know, where the, they have the kind of the historical music and all, you know, all the cultural aspects of, of, of that community from years past. They do the same thing. I had no, I, I never, again, I'd never heard of the Scotch Irish Cherokee c- culture community, but yeah, they, they even have festivals about it every, every year. Or so right, in, right in the same area as where the, uh, where Tom Array um, once sat. The Nawaban right. Nation headquarters. All right. So, with the Nawaban Nation, another thing that I heard during the '90s was that 
they were really able to uh, infiltrate local politics and government pretty thoroughly, especially the police forces. Uh, and they actively ran candidates for office up to the early knots as well. And they were fairly successful, right? Yeah, so I'm, yeah, for sure. So they, that's what I'm saying. Like, this cult was very, like, I mean, I'm not, they're on the level, they're, they are on the level of Scientology as far as their reach goes, you know, as far as their power and their reach. They just didn't. They didn't flourish long enough to to come to what's the power of what Scientology wields today. But they're on that same. They're on that same track. Yeah, and they had a, a very disturbing ability to infiltrate a lot of organizations. Um, and uh, much like I think other similar ancient alien cargo cults have Scientology being one or Nexium being another. As far as I'm concerned, uh, the Nexium cult had has long infiltrated the upper upper echelons of New York, New York state politics, both on the federal level and the state level. And I'm not even just referring to the U.S. Senator from New York, uh, Gillibrand, whose father literally was the public relations guy for the cult and a member of the cult. And he mar- and that homeboy married her father, married his first cousin, who's also a member of the sex cult. So um, her, her stepmother is her, is her cousin. So, you know, I, I can't really... Passing judgment, I have, I'm I'm beyond inbred. So, um, anyhow, but it is it is the it seems to be the activity of the sex cultists to do stuff like that. Things go, and, and governments go, and and and, and much like Scientology or Nexium, the New Aven Nation was just as skilled at <laughs> doing this. I don't, you know, that's what I'm saying. They've fallen so far under the radar, but they I'm not saying I'm not diminishing their capabilities whatsoever. They were very good at what they were doing as far as infiltrating the. Uh, the, the local power structures. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that was one of the more impressive things to my mind about this group was like you're saying how much they were able to you know fly under people's radars, despite the fact that they did have such a strong presence in Georgia for so many years and may potentially still have some of a presence. Because, I mean, you know, we're familiar with this with some of the fundamentalist Mormon groups like Colorado City and Arizona, which was essentially run by the fundamentalist church of Latter-day Saints. The theocracy for years, pointed out the Rushni in uh, Oregon. Uh, the only group I think that was probably more successful I can think of is uh, uh, the Transcendental Meditation Movement in Fairfield, Iowa, because nobody ever really thinks about them, even though they, um, I think, are worth something like $5 billion internationally. So No, for sure. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good correlation, because... I, until you brought the transcendental meditation folks up to into my attention, they had fallen underneath my radar. So I mean, they I, and they are they do seem to wield an unreasonable amount of power and have uh, an unreasonable amount of finances. And that is a, so that's a good correlation to the Waba Nation. That's what I'm saying. Like, had the Waba Nation not been stopped when they were stopped, kind of at their, when they first started kind of hitting their peak you know, as far as growth and power and membership were were picking up, you know. I think they'd be a very formidable organization today on the par with their former, you know, umbrella network out of nation of Islam, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to see, like you're saying, how they have used these cults to infiltrate a lot of local governments, be it Nexium or some of the fundamentalist Mormon sects in Mexico, the Roshni in Oregon. I mean, I'm surprised, guessing i don't know this but i'm suspect the tm movement has probably managed something similar in iowa um, i have no doubt yeah there's no way there after looking into their situation in iowa yeah i have no doubt you're you're, you're spot on because so, there's no way they're operating out of there without owning the local politicians 
So, yeah, it's just, it's really fascinating. I mean, sometimes they just totally will take over entire towns, effectively setting them up almost as quasi-theocracies. And sometimes even beyond that, they're able to heavily infiltrate full-blown, I mean, almost the entire state governments, the police forces. Um, this is, you know, an aspect, I think, of the, because, again, a lot of people tend to scope the notion of cults really wielding this kind of power. But, I mean, you know, when you look at a lot of global political situations, you actually do see this kind of situation far more often than one would imagine. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. And people scoff at it. Like, oh, they, they almost laugh at Mormonism in, in the state of Utah. But, like, I don't. <laughs> I grew up Mormon. You know, I, I understand the power that they wield and the fact that they do, as you just put it, they, create, they have created a theocratic state. Like I said, I, I think it always goes back to Mormonism is sort of the model for like a lot of this kind of stuff, like how you set up a cult to control like a specific body politic. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you want to talk about a well-financed organization. I mean, it w- was about three or four years ago, there's one of their CPAs for one of their mutual funds that they had, private fund they had established. He released a bunch of documents showing that they were sitting on, he said they, he said they had two other accounts that were similar in nature, but he only had purview of the exact you know, money in one account, $120 billion in the account that he was managing. $120 billion slush fund. And he said that was only one of three and didn't know what the other two the other two funds had maintained as far as total funds went. So, I mean, that's a well-financed organization if you have a $120 billion slush fund. Oh, no, I remember when Brigham Young man died. It, I mean, I think technically he was only worth like maybe a couple of thousand dollars. But I mean, he oversaw so many companies. I mean, the total assets at his disposal would have made him like one of, I think, the five richest people in the entire country. I mean, he had like Rockefeller type money, you know, whatever. Right. Oh, for sure. But that's the, that's the cult leader move right there. I mean, David Miscavige had a Scientology. He's worth about a nickel on paper. I mean, look at when if you want to apply that same, same uh, you know, uh, for, you know, the same mode of operations to the mafia. Look at Meyer Lansky, the guy who literally ran. I mean, he's yeah, a that's Jewish a man run, running the Italian yeah. mob for years, and he was worth. He may have owed people money on paper. You know what I mean? All right. He didn't own money; he owned people. So, like, he was worth, you know, count billions of dollars, but he didn't. He hadn't have a nickel in his name. You know. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great example with Lansky. I mean, another guy who really kind of personified the use of creative accounting, to put it mildly. Oh, for sure. No, the guy was a, the guy was a pioneer. I mean, I don't agree with a lot of his activities. They were obviously criminal, but the guy was a pioneer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, let's let's get into the most famous acknowledged member of the Nuwabian Nation now, which is actor Wesley Snipes. So when did he first become involved with the group? So it seems that, that Snipes, I mean, again, there's a very fuzzy history with all these the, the, the characters involved and everything else here. Um, and there's not like a clear date where West Snipes, he didn't, he didn't have a Stormy Daniels moment, if you, if you will. I remember Stormy Daniels with the whole Trump Russiagate nonsense. Um, she actually went on Twitter at one point years back, like 2011, you know, people, folks of the interwebs had dug up the Twitter. She's like, I joined a cult. And she, and she later exhibited signs of having a, um, a Nexium brand on her navel, you know, in, in you know, photographs she'd later done. So it seems that, you know, she, she went on Twitter and, you know, tweeted, Hey, I just joined a cult and that was probably Nexium, Right. Um, but yeah, Snipes didn't really have that moment. He didn't have the whole, I joined, I joined uh, the new Auburn nation. So, Again, I think a lot of it goes back to he somehow 
uh, got a, a company with these folks in the in the in the mid '90s on account of his the Nation of Islam connections and or, and or membership. And uh, I think again I, that points back to that same character of Louis Farrakhan's number two guy who's so integrated into Hollywood and he's so integrated. He's the, he was the connected force between the Nation of Islam and Scientology. And you know again I I can't help but point many things ancient alien cargo cult back to Scientology because they're obviously one of the more prominent ones. But so Snipes seems to have gotten connected there in the 90s and and uh, I you know I don't know if, again it's no clear doesn't seem to be any clear details on the matter but uh, so I don't know if it was so much uh, he he joined as a member and was like hey I got a lot of money we, we can make some stuff happen here or they, they specifically sought him out for financial backing. You know, that, that, that aspect is, is, is unclear, but he definitely got integrated real quick with York and, and uh, he was, um, he was essentially the Tom Cruise. He was essentially as Tom Cruise as David Miscavige. He was essentially Wesley Snipes was to Dwight York, if you will. So how much do you think Snipes' involvement uh, with the Nawabian nation stemmed from his uh, role in working in the Marvel Universe or possibly vice versa? Did the Nawabian sect possibly influence him to becoming involved with the Marvel Universe, specifically Blade? Yeah, so I think, you know, so in my opinion, I think it's a good question because in my opinion, uh, uh, Marvel Comics is, a, is an ancient, you know, yeah, I often call it philemic fan fiction, as in Aleister Crowley's Thelema and fan fiction as in people who are adherents or fans of that philosophy doing their own style of fiction of that. And a good example of this would be Colonel Michael Aquino, the famous offshoot uh, cult leader from the Church of Satan, uh, started the Temple of Set, um, psychological warfare officer in the U.S. Army, famed psychological warfare officer, Phoenix program, uh, interesting character. But um, he would uh, he, he uh, was stationed at the Presidio in the 1980s, and it's famously uh, known for aggressively soliciting George Lucas's attention in which, because he had, he had written the next dozen Star Wars uh, films. He was an ardent writer of Star Wars fan fiction. And as a result of that, had convinced himself that he had written the next dozen Star Wars films and was trying to get George Lucas, uh, camping out in front of Lucas films there uh, at the Presidio, trying to, trying to get um, Lucas's attention to, to, to read his fan fiction. So there's a there's a there's a uh, <laughs> excuse me there's a good example of one of these cultist characters um, who uh, you know an ancient alien cargo cultist leader here of Michael Aquino who is deeply in, involved in, in some fan fiction activities and I think that's a kind of an underlying theme amongst a lot of these characters. But is, in regards to Marvel Comics, I think Marvel Comics really owes it not to Marvel Parsons, Marvel Whiteside Parsons, the birth name of Jack Parsons, and uh, I think a large part there's a lot of uh, correlations correlations between the philosophies and understandings of these ancient alien cargo cultists, specifically the polemic style ones, and um, and the um, the concepts that are that are pervaded through Marvel comic characters, and you know this this goes along with um, Jack Kirby, who's a prominent figure in Marvel comics, who was part of the Sci-Fi Club of Forrest Ackerman, along with L. Ron Hubbard and according to Forey Ackerman, their, their, their club, uh, uh, their editor and their club leader, uh, the entire club joined Scientology. They were some of the earliest members. Um, 
So, and, and you know, so the, and again, Scientology being an offshoot of the OTO there, out of Parsons, uh, Parsons Lodge of the OTO in Pasadena, California, in the heart of, uh, you know, Hollywood land. So I think there's a large connection between, all, you know, a lot of these, those activities, you know, a lot of the ideas and philosophies of their understandings of these ancient alien uh, business amongst these cults are pervade in the Marvel comic stories. And I think a lot of the characters that play in the films are, are, are all these same milieu of the same cults, you know. Uh, and again, li- quite literally, when it comes to Wesley Snipes, I don't know if he still calls himself a member of the Nation of Islam, but if he does, then by virtue of that, he's a member of Scientology. So um, Wesley Snipes starring in, in, the, in this trilogy of the Blade films is what, is what largely funded and financed a good portion of, of the New Wabin Nation's activities in Tom Array, all the way down to the security company. Wesley Snacks was the even the owner of the security company in the property there, which they 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 operated on their city, under a, a, a corporation that he you know he incorporated for those purposes. So he was deeply ingrained, and then I think again, you know, it, it goes his connections to that are, are in the same conversation as why he's starring in the film Blade, a Marvel Comics character. And uh, to give one more quick reference back to Jack Parsons and Marvel Comics and DC, because they're Marvel and DC are intertwined amongst the same characters and the same origin story. And um, DC Comics in recent years, one of the more famous um, comics that have been more famously turned into into a Hollywood blockbuster films. Two different franchises for some reason within just a couple of years of each other is the Suicide Squad, which is famously... Uh, Jack Parsons' uh, nickname for his team of scientists that uh, that created the uh, solid-state rocket fuel, which is so uh, necessary and prevalent in, in the use of in throughout the entire Apollo missions um, of the 1960s. I got to point out, though, I mean, I, I, I think you're really overlooking the component that Rosicrucianism plays in all of this. Because, I mean, Aquino, for instance, wasn't a Thelmanite. Um, I mean, he really came from quite a different school of thought. Uh, but he was. Well, I mean, yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, he, he wasn't a sense, though, because he, he's an offshoot of, of the Church of Satan, which LeVay's very, very uh, well documented as saying his influence is a Crowley on, on his. Well, yes, but I mean, LeVay didn't actually, I mean, he did some ritual, actual rituals, but I mean, that was more, you know, his thing. <laughs> right. It was always right. he was more of a pop culture, pop culture Satanism. I know what you, I know what you mean. I mean, saying I mean, the underlying philosophies and understanding these people are, are orchestrating their groups around. I was trying to get out here with like Rosicrucianism. Okay, so Aquino was a big fan of Rosicrucianism. And I mean, you have to sort of understand like a big part. I mean, frankly, Rosicrucianism could be argued as the origins of science fiction and the fantasy genre because the original Rosicrucian manifestos themselves were works of fiction. They were basically released to create uh, secret orders when they didn't really exist at the time. So there's been this really rich tradition with when within Rosicrucianism of using fiction to essentially craft reality. That's a essential component to Rosicrucianism. No, no, you're 100. percent You're right on target there, Stephen. I think, but I think that's also where Crowley got it right. So Crowley, again, he took a bunch of different philosophies to mash them into Thelema, 
Well, and I think it was probably more Grant, I think. Because, again, there there was a bit of a dispute going back in the late 19th century with the Golden Dawn and a lot of the, the Rosicrucian stuff was actually at that point much more popular in France with, like, the Martinists and what have you. Sure. And, no, you're saying that the, the, during the feud between Grant and Crowley, that, that was more of the Grant side of the feud. Well, no, 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 no. There wasn't really a feud between Grant and Crowley, but this was this was like earlier. This would have been around like the early 20th century, late 19th. But see, okay, the French occult circles, which really gravitated towards Martinism by the early 20th century, they weren't actually that into like ceremonial magic. They practiced theurgy and that kind of thing, but they actually used the arts more than anything for magical workings, and that was in stark contrast to the sort of British occult practice that the Golden Dawn was pushing, which was really big on ceremonial magic. And that was the sort of control they kind of grew out of. Grant, I think, sort of brought maybe more balance back because, I mean, he was the one who really brought a lot of this Lovecraft stuff into the ideology of Kalima with his kind of break-off Typhonium ideology. But it's... No, I understand, what I understand what you're saying. Yeah, there's definitely... I understand what you're saying there for sure. But I, the way, I guess the way I would look at it, though, would be... Um, Let's look at the road. I, mean, I think, yeah, you're, you're spot on with the Rosicrucian uh, origin story of a lot of these activities. I mean, they're, they are the ones that, that Crowley and, and, other, and other characters later built upon those philosophies and understandings that the Rosicrucians produced, which to adapt into their own philosophies. Dwight York did the same. That's what I'm saying. So, like, when you look at the Rosicrucians, you're going to see a deep, deep affinity for ancient Egypt, specifically Akhenaten. Uh, for example, I went to their worldwide headquarters there in I guess it's San Jose, California, and around San Jose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the Roger Cruz. And it's, um, the yeah, you're not, I mean, you're not going to be fooled by their deep affinity from ancient Egypt from the moment you walk in and see the 80-foot pillars, Egyptian-style pillars at the doorway, you know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's, it's, and that's the same thing. That's why Aleister Crowley's doing his, his workings inside the, inside the temple, or inside the, uh, the Great Pyramid there. Um, and it's also why you see Dwight York building the Giza pyramids in in northern Georgia, <laughs> pardon me, in northern Georgia, because for whatever reason, it's this philosophical understanding between these organizations that they all share, and it is part of their lineage. That's what I, that's what I mean by when I say like Thelemic organizations, because again, maybe it's not like directly like hey, we're doing the same stuff as Thelema, but they have these, they share these same common understandings and. And philosophies, one it can be said the same. The same can be said for Mormonism and Scientology as well. Ooh, yeah, that. absolutely. Yeah, so you're. I mean, it's while they operate on the surface today in a modern era is you know obviously different organizations. Obviously, slightly you know there's a lot of similar functions, but they obviously have different functions. Just from the outside, looking from the outside in perspective, and but at, at the root of it, they have the same origins and the same philosophical understandings, the same little book of ceremonial magic. They both at the core of their, their teachings, right? So, you know, in that same regard, that's why, that's what I mean by philemic organizations. That's also what I mean by um, why you see this, 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 this trend between Rosicrucianism. Again, I agree with you on that aspect. I just think what, what, you're, what the perspective is there, there, though, is, is that this is just a common underlying philosophy between these organizations, and they're, they're adept, like characters like Crowley or, or Dwight York, they're 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 taking those philosophies, they're they're adapting them in their own their own likings, and they're forming their own organization and cult out of it. But uh, the underlying theology and philosophies are very similar to the other or the other groups, and I think that's why the, they network so well with one another. For example, 
the Mormon cults, offshoots of the polygamous cults that, that remain still in Mexico today, of the Mittens Romney variety, um, they were shipping teenage girls to Albany, New York, to, to, babies, to be babysitters for the Nexium cult. That's a strange relationship. Well, I don't haven't quite flushed out the ins and outs of the logistical understanding of how that even began. However, in the same regard, now you, you said the New Auburn Nation is likely still um, prevalent today in, the, in their base of operations there in northern Georgia. I agree. And you can use the Nexium cult as an example. Despite Keith Raniere going to prison, their cult leader and cult, and cult founder, um, they're still operating out of a townhouse in the suburbs of Albany, New York, and they still claim to be a cult, and they still claim to be that, you know, that's, their, that's the cult headquarters it has been for years. So I, I have no doubt that the Waba Nation is still still operating in, in northern Georgia. That's And amongst the, the whole area of Georgia within the Atlanta community, because, again, I think there's a deep tie to the Nation of Islam, so that's going to obviously um, cause some greater connections amongst the, uh, the nation of Islam adherence amongst the, you know, in, in and around Atlanta, which has uh, obviously a large base of operations within the nation of Islam, is it, uh, Islam adherence. All right, so do you see uh, Snipes' later uh, tax protests as being uh, driven by his involvement with the Nawabian nation? Oh, yeah, 100%. I feel like it's all the same topic of conversation because it all, it all goes back to that sovereign citizen, sovereign nation concept that these these individuals, a spouse, uh, and Snipes. So, like, you know, that's what I mean by the media largely uncovered this. So Snipes was just always in the media about, oh, he's not paying his taxes. He doesn't think he has to pay his taxes, right? And it was often sort of like, oh, he's, he, he, now he claims he did movies in another nation. Like, he filmed them overseas, so he doesn't have to pay taxes here. But no one ever really got to the root of the reporting. That was not his argument whatsoever. <laughs> his argument was that he's, that he's part of this Moorish nation of people who have not only been here for thousands of years before the United States government, but as a result of that relationship of being here thousands of years before the United States government, that the United States government essentially works for them <laughs> not, and that they're sovereign citizens in a sovereign nation and the United States government can't do anything about it. Right. So that's, that's Snipe, that's Snipes mindset. That's, that's, that's his uh, philosophical understanding of, of where he sits in the world. And that's why, why he was not paying taxes <laughs> right there. Well, yeah, so, like, would you agree with that kind of analysis of, you know, and, and when you look kind of, or if you recall contemporarily to the events about 15 years ago, when 16 years ago, when Snipes was getting uh, in trouble for the tax evasion stuff, yeah, it's, which is, again, at the same time, Dwight York, the cult leader, is, is uh, being charged for child sex trafficking activities. Yeah, yeah. So do you recall in the media reports of Snipes, or even looking back, like, it was never really sold as any kind of sovereign citizen thing, though, right? Like, that was never mentioned, right? Like, the media never framed it that way, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I think Snipes had actually tried to, like, equate it with the American Revolution, though, if I'm not mistaken, right? No, and Snipes, has made, yeah, and he made sovereign citizen comments about it, right? But with the, Yeah, for sure, yeah. And, and, yeah, he had a whole, this was all a revolutionary thing for Snipes at the time. This was no small effort, but it, it was all intentional, you know? He was, this is all a thing. Again, it was all and it was all focused and centered out of this cult there in northern Georgia on in their city of Tomaray that they built, which again is a pretty fantastical city of, of structures. You know, they didn't again they, you know, much like you know, like I would have to reference like Jurassic Park. You know, the old guy, he's like in Jurassic Park, he keeps keeps saying like we spared no expense. I think Dwight York was walking around that place 
given Wesley Snipes a tour or, or they were giving tours to other folks saying we spared no expense because it's quite elaborate. All right, as we head into the home stretch, let's get into uh, York's downfall. I know you've alluded to, to this a few points here, but uh, you want to get into all the uh, legal issues that he had? Uh, yeah, so we're, I mean, <laughs> I've yet to really ever pinpoint, like, so, you know, like, uh, for example, like Jerry Sandusky would be a good example as far as, you know, tr- child sex trafficking operation, you know, a, you know a primary, at least, right, a primary functionary in a, in a child sex trafficking operation, the the coach out of Penn State University there. Yeah, but, you know, there was an operation to investigate that, right? Like, there was an operation from the state's attorney general level, which that guy later disappeared and has never been heard of or found his body's ever been found. Ray Greekar, I believe was his name. Um, but the later federal level, there was another op- investigation. So there was, you know, quote-unquote operations, you know, so there Operation X, Y, and Z, whatever, right, to investigate Sandusky. But I, now that I think about it, there was a third one before he ever got caught, right? What I'm saying is, and, and, and to make this comparison, is there doesn't seem to be that same kind of, like, Dwight York's downfall didn't go the same way, right? There wasn't decades of suspicion surrounding Dwight York and child sex trafficking operations, and then and it, it multiple state and federal level uh, law enforcement organizations ran operations to investigate it, right? Long-term operations, right? Dedicated a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of money. That that wasn't how Dwight York met his end. I, like, it's, it, to me, I, I, I uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the end of uh, the New Auburn Nation is just as mysterious to me as the beginning of the New Auburn Nation because, again, no one's really ever told the story and it largely went unreported in any regard. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. But, yeah, his downfall was pretty sudden because these guys – It was uh, like that. It was just yeah. like, yeah, snap of the finger. I mean, you know, around like, oh, because it was – it was like what around '04 was when the wheels kind of started to fall apart, and I mean prior yeah. to that, they had really been riding high. Like I said, they had made a lot of inroads with the heavily influential Georgia rap scene. They had Big snipes. Time. I mean, the Blade movies were you know doing great at the box office during the time. Oh yeah, those were huge, huge, high-grossing films, big time. Yeah, and then just kind of suddenly, I mean. It came out that he was a pedophile, and then you had the whole thing with Snipes and the protests. I mean, do you think it was possibly related to some kind of internal political struggle in Georgia or something to that effect? Yeah, I so yeah, for sure. I think there was some sort of warring secret society type thing, as we spoke in our last uh, previous conversations. Uh, it was a quote of Ishmael Reed, the counterculture figure. He, you know, about his famous quote of dueling secret societies, and that's the true, true story of history is, is the warring factions of secret societies. You know, I think that's exactly what we have. Obviously, paraphrasing, um, but that's exactly what we have going on here with the new Auburn Nation. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, it was just a total takedown, right? It was they chopped off the head and they chopped off the tail, right? They took off you know, Snipes and they took out York, and it was overnight. You know, and there was no like long-standing investigations. It's very unclear how it all kind of really started. <laughs> I mean, Snipes, I, I mean, he didn't do a lot of time, but I mean, he actually did serve, I mean, a couple of years in prison too, which I think normally, I mean, in a lot of these cases, they usually end up getting out of jail, um, you know, I mean, altogether, I mean, or at least much, or a situation with Jeffrey Epstein where it's like, what, they're technically incarcerated, but they're allowed to like leave um, prison every day so they can go to work or something like that. I, wow. Yeah, as far yeah, as no, I know, I don't think they let totally somebody no. Jeffrey Epstein is a, movies is a unique example, like though, because he, 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 built, he built his own prison to stay in for eight hours a weekend and checked in and out as he wanted to for 
13 of his only of an 18 month sentence where the other five months of the sentence went and no one knows but so he's an, he's an interesting character and speaking of him in regards to ancient alien cargo cultists i think he's an ancient alien cargo cultist myself i uh, for example i don't want to get too deep into it in this conversation but for example if you look at the the visitor logs when he's signing himself in and out of prison he has an interesting signature it looks more to me like a magician symbol it's a it's a uh it's a uh, uh horizontal um figure eight it's not the, the affinity symbol essentially which is a magical symbol for for magical practice i don't know that it's commonly used as someone's signature but for some reason jeffrey epstein signing out of in and out of all of his times in prison which he did quite frequently daily basically was able to go stay at his house for five days a week there in palm beach county florida he was signing in and out with the infinity symbol why i have no idea but i have other reasons to suspect he's an ancient alien cargo cultist as well but that's seems to suggest he's into some sort of ceremonial magic if you will with with, with an activity such as that yeah i mean it's definitely a possibility and i mean certainly it seems like uh there has been this ongoing cult of the watchers or the fallen angels of the nephilim or whatever you want to call them i mean amongst the um the elite for centuries i mean you go far back enough i mean again this all sort of goes to uh theurgy and the whole concept of contacting uh entities in this in outer space uh, this is really for sure no yeah for sure all of these characters are into that same that same concept right there in my opinion They're yeah all- they're all communicating with with aliens and these aliens in their mindset are aliens from a long time ago exist not in our space-time continuum but a separate space-time continuum and therefore they can communicate with them you know contemporarily to these times all right so how about um one more quick i want to make one more note real quick steven if you don't mind regarding snipes in his prison sentence you're right he didn't i mean he did go to prison for tax evasion and you know he did go to prison for a good amount of time. I think if you compare like his his case versus other tax evasion cases, he did significantly more time than the average tax evasion case in that same circumstance, right? So I think what they were what they <clears throat> pardon me, I think what they did with with Wesley Snipes was large part it's the out it's the Al Capone prosecution, if you will. You know the guy's doing a bunch of hood rat shit, but you don't know exactly how to prosecute him on that hood rat shit because you don't have the you know the evidence or the witnesses or the you know can't take the trial so you get him on the the lower hanging fruit the tax evasion then you try to work your way up that tree to a higher higher hanging fruit if you will the uh the kid the child sex trafficking or any other kind of scandalous activities associated with such trafficking and i think that's what the goal with snipes was they just couldn't get there right for whatever reason you know which is unbeknownst to us in this conversation or the general public at large because again the matter's kind of unmentioned and uninvestigated altogether but the uh, I think the uh, the idea with Snipes was we'll get him for the tax evasion. We'll try to get him something, build a better case. In the meantime, we have all of this evidence against the cult leader Dwight York. You know, Snipes being the financier of the cult, you know, York being the cult leader. They take out they take out both those guys. You know, that's what happens to the cult. You know, I mean, they've effectively. Yeah, I'm I'm certain there's still cult members participating in what they claim to be cult activities still to this day. But it's obviously not the same activities that would be going on had. Wesley Snipes still been financing it, not going to prison, and Dwight York not going to prison for a few lifetimes for child sex trafficking businesses. You know, if they were st- if they if they were never prosecuted and convicted, that cult again would be a, a different, a whole different situation today, right? And All right. So, here, but here it is today. We have no idea because you know, again, they, these people were taken out for some reason. Well, to wrap up, let me like 
Praise like an interesting question here for you. Okay, so you brought up Nexium like earlier. Um, the guy Ranieri who headed that. I mean, obviously he was put up as the public face, but it seemed evident to me that the real uh, power behind the throne was actually the uh, I can't remember the woman's name. She was like the number two in the cult, but she had been uh, one of the top neurolinguistic programmers in the country before she had joined. Mm-hmm. Nexium, and I mean, generally, this would have been around 1993. Um, Nexium. So she joined ESP then. Yeah, it really wasn't yeah, yeah. much of an operation at that point. I mean, Ranieri had some charisma, but there was no indication. No, you're right. No, you're spot on. No, you're spot but on. She, you know, signs up, and then I mean, they suddenly become huge within a decade. So I'm. I got to ask you: Do you think maybe it's a similar situation with York and Snipes? Uh, was Snipes possibly the real power behind the throne, and he was using York as kind of a front man? Oh, I suspect that for 100 percent for sure. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah. No, I think I think you're spot on with Nexium as well. Yeah, and that woman was a Scientologist as well. I can't think of her name right now. And she, yeah, she, she found Keith Ranieri in an office park in Albany running something called ESP, you know, uh, executive success programs, trying to sell to corporate folks how to be more successful. Um, self-help style was using, using it, it, both of these individuals. So she was, she would have been a, a nail Ron Hubbard's terminology in Scientology. She would have been a squirrel. She found another squirrel using, so individuals using Scientology technology outside the, the confines of the official Scientology organization, there's official, they have, they hate those people the most in Scientology, right? And they, they call them squirrels and they attack them like <laughs> pretty consistently. You know, a lot of gang stalking operations going on between Scientology and the people that they identify as squirrels. So they, yeah, and that woman, Ranieri both would have fallen in that department and she, yeah, she found him in a random office park and she turned him into a, a basically a cold superstar. Yeah. I think in large part, once Dwight York and Wesley Snipes connected in, in the mid nineties there is when Dwight York, you know, and the Colt both became a superstar. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> no, this is a, yeah, it's got me thinking more and more now and then possibly how much the, how far back the relationship really went. Um, because, you know, it's, possibility i suppose that that might have also contributed to their uh, relocation to georgia and what have you but definitely- no i suspect that was something that snipes yeah that snipes that was more snipes related than was york related yeah that's what you're saying because i mean I, I the understanding i had kind of got was that the ansar movement the yuma political party had sponsored a lot of their activities up until at least around like the mid 80s or something to that effect uh, and it seemed like from that point and that's when you were kind of falling out with those words? Yeah, yeah, they kind of started to right. Because I think that was also the first time that York started to have some legal issues, if I remember correctly, too. That, that might have been another factor why he left Brooklyn. But then... Oh, yeah, the guy was in all sorts of stuff. That's what I'm saying. He's, he's, he was an interesting character within that counterculture area of New York, for sure. No, no, I mean, like, you know, he's a well-known figure, right? Like, other people within the counterculture would all have known this guy, right? That's what I'm saying, like... Yeah, it, it is an interesting trajectory he had because you, you make some good points when it seemed like he was in need of financing at the time when he met Snipes, right? Like, he's in trouble. He's got to get out of New York because he lost his other financing for his cult and counterculture cult activity businesses that he's, he's incorporated himself into. And then he meets Wesley Snipes through, again, probably Nation of Islam Connections. And then that's when, yeah, that's when they hit it off. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think that's, that, that makes sense from my understanding of, of, of the, uh, the situation. But again, it's largely, largely uncovered, largely unreported. <laughs> In fact, the conversation we're having right now is the first podcast even I've ever heard on the topic. So 
Oh, really? Yeah. I hope folks enjoy it. Yeah, no, no. Okay, I'm not seeing anything that he had legal issues here uh, in Brooklyn. Um, but it yeah. yeah, but it wouldn't surprise me because, again, look what the guy's involved in, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Associated, yeah, no, he was like Nambla adjacent, you know, right? He's Nambla, you know, he's doing Nambla businesses later in life, right? I'm assuming he's probably leaving New York under circumstances that are probably to flee a, flee a, flee a situation, right? Like, I mean, maybe not, right? Maybe Wesley Snipes convinced him we got to go to this cold plate. You know, got to go start the cold down here in Georgia. But you know, I you know I, I think that's you know, again largely unanswered. You know, we, a lot, we could speculate a lot of how exactly that went down. But I think you're onto something as far as York's losing his financing, his past financiers, and he's looking for new financiers and gets connected with Snipes. That that all seems to make sense to me. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, too, would probably be the hip-hop community, because apparently York had actually started a record label when he was still in Brooklyn. And again, this was also sort of around the you know the heyday of the five percenters in this whole region. And I mean, a lot of the, uh, the hip-hop outfits that came out of that movement as well. I mean, I think Wu-Tang Clan is probably the most well-known, but there was a lot of them. I'm, I'm not as familiar, though, with that uh, particular scene. Not that I No, you're right. Yeah, York's connected into the early onset of uh, hip-hop, and I, I can't think of the guy's name there in New York City. It's the you know mid to, mid to late 70s. Um, but yeah, York's connected into that. He has connections to that guy. I want to call him like Africa Boombast or something like that. You know, some kind of yeah, wild, yeah, 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 wild was, name like that. Yeah, that was one of the yeah, yeah. That was I think one of the artists that he had recorded initially. And who yeah, so that's and that guy's that's the that's the that, that guy's largely responsible for is credited with with not necessarily inventing but but making hip hop what it is today, right? Yeah, I think he was one of like the first really successful hip hop artists in the early '80s with crossover. Yeah, so, so I think right there, what, what you what you pointed out, I find to be is like the likely nexus point for some of that. You know, whatever the the underlying plot line is, I don't know, but the homage or you know being being shown towards York from the Atlanta hip hop community, right? towards mm-hmm. the new Auburn nation and again it's not uncommon for, for for musical artists to do this here's another one i just thought of the uh hollywood actor jack black and his uh, musical act that he that he had for years prior to becoming a you know a-list actor the tenacious d he has a tribute song to scientology there so he, he pays homage to to dianetics in one of his one of his um one of his songs so, okay, apparently if York was convicted of obtaining a passport under false circumstances via false birth certificate in 1988, so he had faced minor legal scrutiny. And then apparently the FBI started investigating the group in the early 90s, right around the time they were making the move to Georgia. However, they didn't do anything until I believe an anonymous tipster started sending them reports in 2002 thereabouts about that. Yeah, no, 2002, than- right. Yeah, but it, it, was, it was a quick downfall, very quick downfall. Yeah, no, it's like they, apparently he'd been on the FBI radar for like almost a decade, but they didn't do anything until suddenly they started. Apparently, is, an anonymous tipster started seeing them reports that he was abusing kids. Oh, isn't that always the case though? Being on the FBI's radar, like, oh shoot, we knew about that guy. Shoot, we'll yeah. get him next time, fellas. We'll get him next time. That's always what the FBI says. Yeah, no, this is just, yeah, I'm sorry, but yeah, the more I look at this, the more suspect all of this stuff is. It's just no, it's, for sure, no, it's deeply suspect. It's, it, it has deep connection to a lot of different things. 
and and it also is gone again as i've pointed out numerous times largely unreported and largely undiscussed <laughs> yeah i mean it absolutely is i mean what's also interesting too because it sort of eerily parallels the time frame of nexium a little bit i mean obviously nexium was able to hang around i think for about four or five years longer than like maybe a few more years than that than uh the Nobobian nation, but yeah, it seems like both York and Ranieri really started to become a big deal around the same time frame. Oh, 100%. 100%. And I, again, that's what I'm saying. Had the Nobobian nation continued on, uh, they would have been a formidable, formidable organization wielding such power as Nexium. I 100% agree. Yeah. It makes you wonder are these just pounties in the same horse race, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we up from the outside looking in from the general public, especially when these things go largely unreported. Um, <laughs> at all for, for decades. And, uh, you know, and uh, we're looking at, you know, just you know, like the old Buddhist, uh, uh, you know, uh, metaphor for, you know, the, the blind men, the six blind guys holding six different parts of the elephant and all describing it, an elephant differently because they're all, you know, they're only, they're only looking at different pieces of that elephant, but it's a larger creature, you know what I mean? So are we looking at, you know, is, you know, Rhaenyria toe is, is York a toe to like the same, you know, foot of, uh, whatever, whatever creature we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at as far as these, these, uh, sex trafficking, ancient alien cargo cultist organizations and cults go, you know, I think so. I think, it, I, think I think it's, uh, we can look at it from the outward perspective and see that in, 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 you know, very on a surface levels, they're different organizations. They're doing different things, but under the underlying, uh, nature of both organizations is I think they're, they're deeply connected. And most likely, um, you know, uh, in a sense, horses in the same race, if you will, because, you know, I think there's how many of these organizations didn't didn't take off. Right. Like, how many, you know, they're, they're like like a startup in Silicon Valley. How many of these cults didn't take off? York's made it. They made it a good distance. Right. You know, and uh, Ranieri's made it. He, he, he made it a couple of decades. But uh, how many of them made it like three months? How, how many how many failed after a year? You know? Uh, it's also interesting to note here in Africa, Bombada, he actually ended up going his own um, kind of quasi-cult to the Universal Zulu Nation, which he was forced to advocate as the head of in 2016 because multiple allegations of child sexual abuse dating back to yep. the 1970s. Yep, that's what I'm saying. And New York's connected into that whole network. That's what I'm saying. Like, maybe, it was a, maybe things had gotten hot. He had to leave New York, you know? <laughs> But yeah, there's certainly there's a lot more to those to those to those activities and those organizations and the interlocking nature of of, of activities between those organizations. Well, yeah, especially when we sort of go back to with the links that Maury Science had, um, or at least some of the offshoots, I should clarify, saying through uh, Hakeem Bay to like Nambla and what have you. This is really kind of unnerving <laughs> on a lot of levels. <laughs> <laughs> very unnerving <laughs> um yeah no this is definitely i mean i had again known about going into this with the child sexual abuse but i hadn't really realized it was potentially as epidemic within some of these circles um oh yeah and again when when nexium's when Ranieri, keith Ranieri, when he first got charged, i mean i mean more like the more science circles uh you know and then getting into nation islam five percenters i mean again i knew about hakeem bay's whole thing but you're getting sure. it more like mainline african-american groups here as opposed to the you know, kind oh, of yeah, white no, guys pretending saying. to be you know moors type thing. right no i see what you're saying but yeah but but uh, it's for me again Nation Islam and Scientology, it's the same organization to me, you know, because, again, they are the same organization. It's mind-boggling, but they are. And, uh, you know, the, uh, 
when when Ranieri's uh, defense attorney went into court initially to to defend him against the child sex trafficking charges, he literally argued, "You can't charge my client for this. Scientology's been doing this for longer and doing it way more than we are." And and then everyone in the courtroom's like, "That's not a defense. Like, what are you what are you talking about?" <laughs> So, but it makes you wonder. It really does make you wonder because, again, the basis of operations of, this, of that sex trafficking was operating out of like, essentially child farms in, in, in Mexico. And again, and Scientology does indeed have such child farms in Mexico, and as do the Mittens Romney style Mormons, the polygamous sects there that have been in Mexico for, for uh, well over 100 years. Yeah, no, it's definitely fascinating. And to, to add like a little uh, additional historical context here before we wrap up. So the original Moorish Science Temple was actually founded around 1913 in Newark, New Jersey, and had major congregations in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Detroit, and then eventually ended up in Chicago and various parts of the Midwest. I know they ended up having a decent presence in Milwaukee, too. So um, all big in the Northwestern Territory Society of Cincinnati area. And um, in time. yeah. Uh, there was also, I guess, a little bit of overlap and even rivalry with Marcus Garvey's uh, movement as well in the early days. So this is, of course, the organization that was set up by Noble Drew Ali. And I mean, a lot of this stuff already had elements of um, you know, what became sort of the ancient astronaut cargo cult and a lot of this other stuff. So, again, yeah, it's interesting to learn, to learn some more about their origin story there out of New York, New Jersey, because that is an interesting tale. Yeah, I mean, they had up, I mean, and that brings us back again to the same area, too, um, where P.B. P. B. Randolph was also active. Because, again, he was really big uh, around in the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area specifically, and also Jersey and that kind of region, too. So, Hudson, all the way up to the Hudson Valley region as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's another interesting one. Here's another uh, thing you'll enjoy about Noble Drew Ali. Uh, Timothy Drew was believed to have been born on January 8, 1886 in North Carolina. Sources differ as to his background and upbringing. One report states he was the son of two former slaves who were adopted by a tribe of Cherokee. Oh, interesting. He later claimed to have a Cherokee mother. So, yeah, that's another fascinating aspect of them uh, eventually re- the Nawabian nation, that is to say, to relocating to Yeah, no, I, I, that's it. I'll have to look into that one. That is sound interesting. That, there's definitely a story there, right? Like, there's definitely a reason why they selected that mound as the mound which their ancestors built and which their ancestors, like, the first mound they built, right? Like, this is, this is they're like, we're, we're, our Moorish ancestors were the mound builders, and they, they built this mound as the first mound, right? That, would, that was that was the story of the Nuwabin nation. So there's a reason why they, I'm saying there's a reason why they came up with that tale though, right? Like it had some importance. So yeah, that's, it's interesting that homeboys uh, was, uh, had some Cherokee origins in that same area. Yeah. And apparently the uh, mainland Moorish science movement also started, there is such a main thing as a mainland Moorish science movement, but they started embracing the sovereign citizen movement pretty uh, large scale. It seems in the early nineties in general. So that might've been part of a broader trend, but it's still really fascinating, especially in light of some of the other activism that Hakeem Bey was involved in. So. Oh, for sure. This guy, this guy, uh, there's definitely got again. There's definitely gonna be. I, I don't know off the top of my head. I'm unfamiliar with it at the time of this conversation. But yeah, between Bay and York, there's got to be some connections, right? They had to have crossed paths. Yeah. No. This is yeah. This is definitely a fascinating milieu that we're looking at here. That is for sure. And 
Yeah, it's it's very much, I mean, an unknown history as well. I don't think anybody has really tried to look beneath the cracks, so to speak, like this. It's oh, I can assure you, yeah, 100%. Yeah, this is, again, largely unreported, largely undiscussed. Like, I don't even think Wesley Snipes, like, has really ever been forced to answer any questions. Yeah, no, like, I don't, nobody ever even brings any of this up now, because I know he's been trying to make a comeback recently, and you never hear any of this stuff kind of, I mean, yeah, maybe occasionally yeah. they mention that, you know, the tax protest, but they never bring up the Nawabi nation. Yeah, like, they never say, hey, what happened to your friend Dwight York? Like, that's never been a question, right? <laughs> yeah, no, this is... I mean, if it were, he'd probably pull a Bill Gates when Bill Gates was asked about Jeffrey Epstein like about last year or so sometime in an interview. He goes, his response was, well, he's dead, so that's that. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it's it kind of seems like. Say like, York, well, York's in prison, so, you know, that's that. Yeah, this is, this is definitely more to this than meets the eye, that is for sure. Well, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would just love to see Wesley Snipes make one comment on the subject. Like, again, like, it seems that he's never been forced to even really comment on it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, as always, sir. Oh, absolutely, Stephen. I appreciate the time, and I appreciate the conversation. Like I said, I think we just uh, just hit some blue water, so to speak, with this conversation. I don't think anyone's ever talked about this before on any kind of podcast. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed it, too, and I've uh, learned some interesting facts out of this. I know I sure have. On that note, as always, I want to thank you guys so much for your time and support, and good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Swallow what I'm about to spit Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the goat chain We were raised, my people there, they feeling me Down low, skin low, more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Stuck down in the stick, hut is hot as hell. I tell you what, put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out, cause they done let the wolves out. Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall 
So legalize it, Vato, about a gang is Chapo. Come on, legalize it, don't need to advertise it. The weed cures a cancer, everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money, when we rock that stash, honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Civilization, what? 